Alice Brooks is a cinematographer who has worked on award-winning features, television, and commercials. She is a graduate of the USC School of Cinematic Arts, where her creative partnership with director John Chu first began. Since, they have worked on several projects together, most recently on the film In the Heights, based on the musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Brooks is known for her use of dramatic lighting and compassionate camera work. Her latest film is Tick, Tick, Boom, which is set to release with Netflix this fall. Alice Brooks, welcome to the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. Can I just say about In the Heights, just wow. When I when I saw it, and I think that's been like a consensus of so many, so timely that we need at this moment and just so many things like about aspirations and dreams and love. And it made me... I don't know if I want to use that word nostalgic, but it actually made, I don't know if you felt it like watching it, it kind of even nostalgic of even about so many people being able to come together. What was it like, you know, filming all of these elements? It must be like, a, it's very tight wire, I can imagine. And, and then making it so that it was all balanced so that we all come away with this big feeling. Filming in Washington Heights was just like, the most magical summer of my life. We shot in the summer of 2019 in a neighborhood in New York City called Washington Heights, which the movie is about. And I first arrived in New York in March of 2019 in the middle of winter, and we were location scouting and it was freezing. And there's pictures of us standing in the middle of an empty high bridge swimming pool in winter coats. And we go look at the George Washington Bridge at J. Hood Wright Park or stand on rooftops. And we were freezing cold, but we were imagining what summer might be like in Washington Heights. And as it started to warm up and the people in the community started flooding into the streets, I started falling in love with Washington Heights. I realized somewhere in the middle of my prep before we started filming that my job was to take that love of a very real place and to capture that, to put that on screen and not to make Washington Heights into something it wasn't. And so that nostalgic feeling you feel when you watch the movie, we've been in the middle of this pandemic and we've had moments where we think we're about to be able to go dance in the streets again, but that really was the last summer we could celebrate that way. And for me also, I grew up in New York. I grew up on 29th Street and 2nd Avenue. And my father was a playwright and my mom had been a dancer before we were born and an actress before my sister and I were born. We lived in a 300 square foot apartment, but it felt much bigger because all the doors in the building were open. When I came home from school on the top of the second floor landing, there was always Sarah and her sister Rose with the door open to their kitchen and we were allowed to come in and be there and they had grown up in the building and they were, I mean, I don't know how old they were, but they had grandchildren. So that sense of community, I, I felt nostalgic being in Washington Heights where that kind of community still exists, where people can take care of each other and where you have this huge extended family that it doesn't matter if you're not blood relation, but they're the extended family of the people in your community who you work around and you, and you struggle together with and you raise your children with. And that still exists in Washington Heights. And I was so inspired by those people and the, the sense of community. And so I have nostalgia for my childhood while watching In the Heights because I feel like that is a, 
something that is dying in our country. Oh, yes. And in particular, I mean, there's, of course, so many wonderful things about New York. So it hasn't all vanished, but in particular with gentrification. And that's, of course, another subject in the this film and in the music, its original musical. But you really did capture that very well, that sense that the streets are an extension of your living room and that your neighbors like the abuela, they're looking out for you. And it was just so beautifully done because you thread that needle so it doesn't become like a Hollywood version of what reality is. That was really great because you create these atmospheres that are emotional, like what the affection they feel for home. And at the same time, they're really like beautiful in a way that's kind of a heightened emotional, like the love of place. I think the feeling, all the crew members felt it when we were there, that we all fell in love with Washington Heights with making this movie. It was it was very special when you have a group of people, 500 people who are commuting to Washington Heights every day to make a movie and we all were on the same page. And I have to say John Chu is an amazing leader at getting everyone on the same page in terms of he shared his ideas with everyone so early on and then he encouraged other department heads like myself to share things with our departments. And so I even got to take my crew to Washington Heights way early in prep before they had even started work. And we spent two days wandering the streets, eating Dominican food, looking at the George Washington Bridge, sitting on stoops, just observing and falling in love and letting all the tastes and the smells and the feelings just be absorbed and not talk about specific shots or specific locations, but just absorb what exists. And you have such a compassionate camera work that there's something that impressed me a lot because I know it can be difficult with musicals with the fact is it's a kind of strange thing for someone to break into song like you know they're going around their life and they could oh and then I just want to sing about it and so there's this kind of intimate confessional like it's not a whisper but it's really close you know and then but there's this song in the background sort of and then it transitions quite seamlessly and I thought that's that's really wonderful that that doesn't break the illusion and yet the music is throughout too. It was really important to us that the music part came from the environment and so John started talking to Christopher Scott who's the choreographer and myself on day one, or even before we got to New York about, he wanted us to find music that was in the community, whether it was birds flopping or the sound of a gate opening and start to create music through the environment. And so we're also invited into the musical when Usnavi is telling the children, the streets are made of music. And so then you see him start to sing but he's walking, there's no dancing yet. And then it slowly builds, but you start to feel things, right? Like the, when he opens the gate, when he exits his front door and he walks down the stoop and he opens the gate, that is musical. And then he spins the manhole cover and that's musical. So you start to slowly build these musical elements. And then as he's pouring the sugar and the cream into the coffee, that becomes another musical element. And it just slowly builds until he goes 
to the window and he starts singing about his dreams and his desires and how he's locked in the store basically and trapped in the store. And that's the first time you see dancing in the streets and it's in reflection. And you haven't seen dancing up until the, this moment. That's the first moment. And then he walks out of the store and we're in a full musical, but we start very intimately as, as you notice, and it starts to build slowly through that opening number and allowing the audience to go, okay, I'm okay being in this musical number. And, and I think that's what's so special about In the Heights because people who aren't musical fans who are taken to see the movie or you know watch it with their family, love the movie and they are completely surprised because they don't like musicals. Yes, you managed to make it, well, the whole team, because of course it's collaborative yeah. effort, but you manage it to uh, just be something we could all relate to, but we don't realize we're in a musical. That's what I love too. The subtlety is amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was fun to figure out all those pieces uh, because also what's unique to In the Heights is that characters' hopes and their dreams, their fears and their anxieties are not only expressed through song and dance, but through the environment around them. And so you have numbers like When the Sun Goes Down or Pacencia Fe, where the world literally shifts to where the characters are emotionally or 96,000. And th that's when you get the big spectacle, but it's really an intimate movie. It's about people finding home and finding what home means to them and what community means to them and where do you really want to be, what your dreams really are. I really personally loved the symbolism in the film and there seemed to be these visual metaphors for each character's dreams like Usnavi's reflection in the window and Abuela's light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm wondering how you make this connection between cinematography and symbolism and how this differs based on each character. It the process that I went through working with John Chu and Christopher Scott, and then figuring out the lighting elements to it or the camera design work was that John, for three or four days, we sat with the script in his office and he had up on the wall, all these note cards and it had each scene and then and, and then a color for each musical number and then a colored note card for the beach. So like the beach would, would be yellow and then the musical numbers would be blue and then the scenes would all be white. And I, I always ask my directors to talk to me as if the camera were an actor, as if, I, because I grew up around theater people and I was a child actor and I really feel like being given a specific intention the way an actor is given a specific intention for a scene then I'm able to go light the scene sort of effortlessly or intuitively instead of, okay, I'm just going to light the scene because this is, this is where the character is in the story. But I really like a specific intention. And so John and I went through each scene and created a one or two word emotional intention for each scene, emotional feeling for each scene. And then I created a spreadsheet. And from there, when I knew like the dinner scene, the intention is the promise of a wonderful evening, something like that. It was shorter, but I was able to then start that scene in this incredible warmth and 
we had all these intimate tight shots with the food and you really wanted to feel like you were at the dinner party and not that we were observing a dinner scene, but really that the camera was one of the characters that the camera, so that the audience was a member of the community, was seated at that table with the family, was dancing there, was able to scoop up the food and able to taste the food. And so that promise, when I was given the intention of a promise of a really great evening, I then figured out how I wanted to light it based on that intention. And then we go into the club and it's chaotic. And so that's why we start really tight on the horn and we pull back super fast and you see all this club because now we're in this angst of the end of the dinner scene. And in terms of movement, because I think, and I never really reflected on camera work or cinematography as a choreography but then it must be because there's all these moving elements in place that you have to get just right and so how do you approach it I I don't camera operate anymore and I didn't camera operate on in the heights but I work very closely with the camera operators and I do during dance rehearsal I take my iPhone and I wander around and John and Chris do the same thing and that's how we start to build a scene. And then John takes what we've shot in rehearsal and storyboards that have been drawn and starts to edit them together to the music. And so I was able to show the camera operators like what we were going for and the dolly grip, an amazing dolly grip who knows how to move the crane, who can listen to the music perfectly and move the dolly in the exact, in the exact time in a musical is just magic. And so that's how I work with the camera operators. And we were just very lucky with our operators on this movie. They just were the most delightful, wonderful human beings and artists. And they understood the movie we were making and were totally on board. Like Champagne is a single shot. It's the only musical number we did as a winner. And so Chris Scott, John, and I spent the Sunday before in Abuela's apartment, which is a real location in Washington Heights on the corner of 175th and Audubon. And we were with our iPhones, it was only the three of us and at different points, we'd be the actors, the, the characters, and then and then and wander around with the iPhone and we figured out exactly what the shot was. And then the next morning I was able to show the Steadicam operator what the shot was. But then you have all these other elements. It's live singing. We're in a very small apartment. We had to figure out how to hide lights. I mean, the apartment is only 14 or 15 feet wide at its widest and 40 feet long. And you can see into each room. So it was very complicated. And the Steadicam operator had had to get nail every take. And there are mirrors too in the space and he had to avoid seeing himself. And there's a moment because it's live singing where Vanessa gets to decide when to start singing, where Melissa chose when to restart singing. So there's a pause. And because it's live singing, she could make that pause as long as possible. So the steady cam operator had to improv that moment and see. And he just sort of gently floated and it was perfect. We had three cameras most of the time, but I'm right there with them. Sure. And what is it like when you you have the the drama and then you have the musical? So is it like you know filming almost like two films, or how are you imaginatively working out that you're leaving space for you know editing or you're imagining ahead what will be done with the footage 
and since it's live singing, you have this, a lot of people then would be like maybe soundtrack comes in, but the music is all in. But I don't know how you're leaving spaces for certain things that are added post-production. And and so how does that work? Well, I mean, you you want the editor and the director to always have choices later on because, you know, just because you think something might work when you're shooting it, you might need a longer pause or an extra texture shot. And so you want to give lots of options. Nest and home is such a big part of the movie. And so we had B camera always looking for images of nesting, whether it was birds literally nesting. So there's lots of birds in the movie because Peter Agliata, who is our B camera operator, would go out and shoot birds when we were doing things like champagne and only needed one camera. Or there are people stand in the opening number, you see people hanging out of their window. And those are real members in the community. And then we had to go get releases and, you know, someone would have to go get signed releases if Peter filmed them and asked them if they wanted to be in the movie. We wanted to build the movie with all those textures. And so that gives the space. And then after Abuela passes, the sound goes away completely. And there's just all these very still images. And I think my favorite shot actually in the entire movie is we shot it off the crane and it's just this very still image of the tops of the buildings going, we're filming East going on along 175th street and it's blacked out. And it almost looks like a painting to me. It doesn't actually look like a real building. And I think that's my favorite shot in the movie. And finding those still, still moments where the sound could just completely disappear. And, and so allowing the movie to breathe. I'm thinking about the larger group scenes. Do you think you could speak to the challenges of filming those big dance numbers like 96,000? How long does it take to film? How do you go about choosing the different shots and angles? So 96,000 was one of the more challenging numbers we filmed. It's filmed at the Highbridge Pool, which is right in Washington Heights. You can take the exact same walk Benny, Graffiti, Pete, Sunny, and Usnavi take to get to the pool. And it's these two massively huge swimming pools in the middle of a park. And they used to be the reservoir system for the rest of New York City in the early 1900s or late 1800s. And there's this whole system of, of tunnels underneath the pool. And so we had these shots designed like the overhead shot on Vanessa with all the boat speed Berkeley shot with her in the pool. But New York City has a no drone policy. So we couldn't fly a drone to get that shot which would have been the easiest way to get it. And so we ended up um, with a crane, but we can only have a very specific weight on the de pool deck because you've got all these tunnels underneath the, the pool deck. And so that was one challenge. We had all these challenges building up to getting to Highbridge. And another challenge is it's, the pools are so huge. We thought that there was no way we would ever have enough extras to fill the pool. And so we thought visual effects was going to have to tile people in. And in the end, we ended up with 500 extras and plus all our dancers, I think 100 dancers, plus our cast, which is 20 people or so. We ended up with a lot of people, but the pool is still huge. But so we'd have to, you know, so the, the 
AD department would move the people around the pool to make it feel full. And we never had to use visual effects to add more people. Then the next element was that it poured rain for two days while we were there. And so we had to add a third day because the weather just didn't cooperate. And we could do things like the underwater shots while it was raining, but when you or Sonny splashing in, um, in the pool doing his part of them, we could hide because there's so much ripples already on the water, you couldn't see the rain. Then the sun burst out of nowhere and I looked at John and I'm like, can we, and the crane was facing towards the bleachers and like, can we just turn around and do the ending of the ending where, where it's the huge crane, you, you come from underwater to this huge crane shot where there's huge dance in the shallow part of the pool and the sun was perfect. I'm like, can we, can we get this right now? And he, everyone quickly pivoted and we shot that scene. So I think we knew what we wanted and we had to adjust because of the weather and it still worked, but we had to shoot an extra day, but it was definitely challenging the pool. The water was freezing cold. So the poor actors had, couldn't, I mean, they were freezing. John spent the entire three days in the water with them because he's like, if, if they are in the pool, then I'm in the pool. It was challenging. And at the very end, we, we had to film, we were backed into, we couldn't move that off our schedule because the pool was going to open for the summer and we weren't allowed to film there once the pool opened because they have something like 3000 visitors a day. And speaking of Chu and Miranda, I mean, your collaborators are recurring. And in the case of John Chu, I think going back to university, University of Suffolk. That's correct. We went to USC together to film school together. So we've known each other almost 20 years. That's amazing. So how did you build that trust and collaboration? What must be now a shorthand where you can just communicate without saying John made a musical short in college called When the Kids Are Away, and he asked me to shoot it, and I was beyond ecstatic because musicals have been a love of mine since I was a little girl. I grew up watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. We had all the VHS tapes, and they were on constantly. The Sound of Music, My Fair Lady, South Pacific, The King and I. So I grew up watching movie musicals, and that's all I wanted to make. And then no one was making musicals. And John wanted to make this musical short and we bonded over our love of musicals. And we have spent the last 20 years doing lots of musical driven things together. We did a series called The Legion of Extraordinary Dancers starting in 2009. Um, and we did three seasons of that together, which is about superheroes whose superpowers are their dance moves. And Christopher Scott was the choreographer on that. And the three of us really learned doing that. That became a sandbox for us. There were no rules. We had no money. We had no one overseeing us and we could do whatever we wanted. And we used that as a, as a way to learn how to capture dance, to learn how to tell a story through song and dance. And there's no singing, but but through through music and dance. And we made lots of mistakes and we learned from those mistakes and we're able to incorporate all that knowledge into In the Heights. Yes, well, it's it's lovely how that comes together because you're really building on this whole history that you feel and that just the, the intimacy as well. And I, I think, you know, musicals are coming back and you're working with, I think, one of our great, great talents, of course, then Manuel Miranda, who's brought musicals back. But in a way, as you say, it's not Hollywood. It's not, 
it's just so beautiful, the vernacular, the beauty of slang and the streets and bringing that together and finding the poetry. So I think that that's a big, big renaissance. So we can't wait to, to see more collaborations you have. And speaking of which, Tick, Tick, Boom, I, when's the release date on that? I haven't been given a release date yet, but I know it's this fall and I'm in the middle of doing the DI, the digital intermediate, the color on it right now, which is really exciting. And I love the movie and I'm really excited for its release and working with Lynn's amazing and having that creative partnership that bloomed out of In the Heights has been pretty wonderful because we met on In the Heights and then we've spent almost two years doing Tick, Tick, Boom together because of the pandemic has been part of our story of making this movie. And as I learn more about you and your family, Tick, Tick, Boom feels like, you know, these are some of the artistic struggles that those of us who are artists do face. And it, it must have felt a little bit like uh, the stories that you had, you've been seeing your whole life. Yeah, Tick, Tick, Boom is about Jonathan Larson who wrote Rent and it's his story before he wrote Rent. When the script got sent to me and Lynn, Lynn had me read it and I, I showed him pictures of my childhood in New York City where my dad was in theater trying to make it as a playwright. So I grew up in New York City and we moved to Los Angeles when I was 10 in the summer of 1989 and Tick Tick Boom takes place in the early 90s in New York City and my memory of New York and my feeling of New York, even though I've been here a million times, New York will always be, the memory of New York, the feeling of New York will always be that moment when I left because I was really sad to leave. And Lynn and I are the same age. And so that is his memory. You know, we both experienced that time period at the exact same time. And so we had a, a feeling of what we wanted New York City to be like. Yeah, there's nothing so much like for an artist about that well, the place of childhood, I think for everyone, it just touches them and you remember it and you carry it with you. And I think of like James Joyce writing Ulysses all over Europe about Dublin in 1904, you know, but it's crystallized. So it's it, it's something that you can create, maybe arguably even because you've been away that you know what to cherish. I think I just, instead of experiencing New York for 40 years, I experienced it really intensely for 10 years. And so you're right, it crystallizes. It, it, it is so clear. Like I can remember wearing a white pair of shorts and a blue tank top and being allowed to walk down my block for the very first time without my parents. And it was hot, hot, hot summer. And I remember the people walking down the street the opposite way. And I, it's just like this clear, vivid memory of what New York was in, in 1990, 1989. And so because you leave, I don't have so many different memories to sort of have to go through to get back to that moment in time. I, that moment in time exists in my, exactly in my head. Yeah. And and I love also that it circles around this question of, I mean, it's right there in the title, Tick, Tick, Boom. How much time do we have to do something great? So I think as artists, but I think just as people, you know, wondering how much time you have to do something great and how do you make your impact on the world? This children's book called Miss Rumpheus, and I've carried it around with me my entire life. And 
It's about a woman whose grandfather tells her when she's very young that she must do three things. Um, and the last one is the most difficult thing of all, and that's to fill the world with beauty. And I give this book to every one of my friends who are having babies. I have a copy with me almost at all times. That feeling that Jonathan Larson had in Tick, Tick, Boom of, of how long do we have, you know, how much time do we have to do something great? And the fact that he passed at such a young age, but still was able to make such a huge impact on the world, on musical theater, on, on Broadway is pretty remarkable. Yes, as artists, uh, we can bend time, we can stretch it, and it can be, we can be masters of it, and that's a wonderful thing. My name is Jordan Holman, and I'm a guest editor and associate podcast producer with The Creative Process. As someone who was studying both English and film in college, I found Alice Brooks's answer to this question to be extremely powerful. The marriage of symbolism and cinematography is important for conveying the film's message, and I loved how Brooks talked about setting intentions for each scene. It gave me a whole new perspective on film, character development, and story building. As someone who has always believed in the power of words, I find it so interesting that a single phrase like the promise of a wonderful evening, for example, can inform an entire scene. Even with my background in film studies, I didn't know that intention setting was something that cinematographers also utilize. In order to cinematically illustrate the film's themes, Brooks explains that incorporating these predetermined symbols, emotions, and feelings are at the forefront of her camera work. It is so much more than the technical elements that audiences are exposed to at home. These behind-the-scenes metaphors are what contribute to Brooks's aforementioned compassionate camera work. I learned that these intentions and symbols guide lighting choices and camera angles, and I never understood how thematic elements are paired so closely with cinematic choices. And within the Heights specifically, it was obvious to me as a viewer that cinematography was different depending on each character. They were each assigned a vision or a goal that was accompanied by a prominent cinematic symbol. I love symbolism in literature, so I liked seeing it in film too. On-screen visuals are reflected and repeated throughout the film as well. Brooks confirms that language can single-handedly be the most dynamic influence in a film. People, even myself sometimes, view literature and film as two different modes of storytelling, but in reality they are incredibly similar. They're beautifully woven together through the gift that is symbolism. So what was charting the visual path of Tick Tick Boom like in comparison to In the Heights? Well, for In the Heights, I've worked with John for so long, so it was very easy and we had a shorthand immediately, but anytime you work with a new director, you don't have that shorthand. And, and now Lynn and I do, but at the beginning, you're figuring out how you work together. And, and so that became a, a big part of our early process was how do we work together? How do I ask him the questions that I need to do my job? And it was wonderful. Lynn and I worked with this amazing story board artist named Grant Schaefer for a really long time planning out all the musical sequences for Tick, Tick, Boom. There were a few we decided we weren't gonna do. And then the pandemic hit and we had to come, we stopped for six months and we had to come back and we decided we were gonna storyboard the last of the musical numbers. We needed to do that of COVID restrictions on set. And some of the ones we had decided not to do were ones with the 
background extras and stuff. And because of COVID, we had to very carefully map things out. The cast was amazing. We were just having the most brilliant time together. And actually there was a, we were looking at a shot yesterday in the DI and I said to Lynn, remember that was the best day of our lives. And then the pandemic hit and he said, yes, that night. And we shot one more day after that. Then you're ripped away and you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when you're going back and you're worrying about your family and your health and the world and, and your community. We were able to really sort of as filmmakers keep in touch with each other. We had something called Tick Tick Zooms once a week where we would where we would all sometimes it felt like therapy because we were all like, well, what are you doing locked in your house? And then then we started playing trivia and it was it was so much fun, but it it expanded the movie in a very different way. And and then we all had to come back and figure out how to make a movie in in the middle of a pandemic. And we were one of the first full movies to shoot. And so there everyone was figuring it out. And so it, they're just so, first of all, they're totally two different movies. And then the process was so different because I was working with someone I had never worked with before, getting to know Lynn. And then once we figured out, we wanted to storyboard together and Alex D. Orlando, who's the production designer and, and Grant and I would sit together for hours and just work out these scenes. And it was so fun to be so specific and, and listen to Lynn and then, and then figure out of what he really wanted. It was a incredibly rewarding process. So I know that Tick, Tick, Boom and In the Heights are both these musical films. And so I'm wondering how the musical elements kind of guide your decision-making and then how the two films differ and how you go about choosing the elements based on the two themes. I don't know if I can speak so specifically to that yet about Tick, Tick, Boom, just because no one's seen the movie. They couldn't be more different from each other. They're night and day different. I mean, the approach is different to any movie I shoot, but I think just because they both have music in them, are musicals, doesn't mean that I approach them at all in the same way. And then you, you spoke to it there about the having COVID come right in the middle of Tick, Tick, Boom. And I was wondering how the those events may have added to the resonance of some themes you're dealing with. Tick, Tick, Boom takes place in 1990 in New York City. And it's the backdrop of the AIDS crisis going on in New York as we were then hit with our, a new pandemic. Um, we felt that Jonathan could have been, been writing the lyrics about, about COVID-19 and not AIDS. There's just lots of themes that, it's amazing that Jonathan was able to write lyrics that are so specific to what's happening right now in our world, but he wrote them 30 years ago. And so I think, I do feel like when people watch this movie, it will be very timely, even though it's a period piece. Yeah, it was just such strange, I mean, speaking of the uh, this current pandemic, just such strange times. I mean, in that first week you spoke about it, uh, you know, a friend of mine, he was one of those that discovered that AIDS was a virus, he died. Mm. And I actually was at the funeral and everyone, was, we didn't realize and everyone was kissing and hugging. And I'm just thinking, these are so many immune compromised people, okay, gathering, I'm thinking, I just had to leave, actually. I, I felt it was such an outpouring. And then, and then I don't feel like everyone realized we're having this other pandemic. Yeah. And so 
I just left. And, and we lost people like Terrence McNally, who had survived and yet died to COVID. So it's just strange. I think that we'll all remember where we were in those times and how it brought us together. And it's interesting how illness can do that and how art can do that too, I should say. It helps us appreciate the beauty and the struggle. What have the arts given you? I mean, in terms of, you know, what I, I, I know you grew up in a family of artists, but like, you know, what, what do you love about them? And just, it's your whole life, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I just got goosebumps when you asked me that. I'm incredibly fortunate I knew I wanted to be a cinematographer when I was 15 years old. There's nothing else I've ever wanted to be except an astronaut when I was 10. But I grew up with really loving, amazing parents and an artist around us all the time. I mean, in our little 300 square foot apartment, my parents' friends were always over and they were writers and they were actors and they were dancers and musicians and painters. And so I grew up in a house filled with artists and I could see the love of the world artists have. And I also knew what the struggle was. Like I signed up for being a cinematographer knowing full well that it is not an easy career path. Making movies is not an easy career path. And my dad would let me stay up as late as I wanted when I was five, six years old. And as long as I, and watch whatever he was watching. And, but I had to read the credits. I had to spell out the letters of the credits and he would pause it and have me. And that's how I learned to read was by reading the opening titles. And and I remember just being in his arms, watching The Natural with Robert Redford. And that movie has influenced me for the rest of my life. I think it's still the most beautiful movie I've ever seen. I showed it to my daughter when she was three. I, I just think it is just the most perfect film. And it has definitely inspired my choices as a cinematographer. I'm married to someone who is in business and he plays guitar and he plays beautiful guitar and spends an hour a day practicing, even though he knows he's never going to play professionally or even in front of anybody, but he loves it. And he's fully supports me and my decisions as and my career, because he wasn't given that opportunity to go explore being a musician. His mom's a painter, but his dad's a lawyer and the men in his family are all either lawyers or in business. And that was sort of just what he was going to do. And I think the fact that, that he loves music so much and our house is always filled with music. And when we met, it was just like, okay, you go, let's figure this out. Let's make sure you get to do your art. That's beautiful. And that's what we should also say, because the, no artist is alone. They've had some support, usually, you know, even if it's a kind of tough love support, but that's that it's an ecosystem, it's a, a community and a family. And, you know, I was reflecting because I tend to, you know, I interview around, we get recommendations, of course, but I interview, you know, artists and people I'm interested in. And I, 
I don't know what the numbers are for female cinematographers. I think it's more challenging. And I'm embarrassed to say uh, we've interviewed a number of cinematographers, but you're the first woman uh, cinematographer, although other female filmmakers we've interviewed. And so I I have to interview more. And we're doing an interview with Women in Media, you know, that organization Mm -hmm. that's for gender equity the other day. And we were just discussing some of these things. So as as a woman, you probably don't think of it as just your art as your art, but... I went to film school. Like I said, I knew when I was 15, I wanted to be a cinematographer. I grew up, I was a child actor, so I was around set all the time. I did almost 40 national commercials between the ages of five and 10. And then we moved to Los Angeles because my sister's career was blooming. And I would go to whatever soundstage she was working on after school and sit in a dark corner watching the lighting people. And I'm like, I'm going to do that. I mean, I just loved it. And, And I thought they were magicians. I had no clue that it would be a challenge, the fact that I was a woman and not a man. I went through film school, everything was great. And then somewhere in my mid twenties, I started to realize that there weren't a lot of working female cinematographers, that there were actually only just a few. And Nancy Schreiber being probably the person who inspired me the most in terms of how she was able to grow her career. And then slowly there were more and more women that I started being coming aware of. And, and now, you know, as a woman in her forties, uh, there are so many female cinematographers and it's just a lot of them don't get to shoot studio movies, but the world's changing very quickly. And it, I mean, this year alone, there's, lo- I mean, I'm on Instagram. I see so many women shooting big studio movies this year and it's pretty exciting. Yes, well, as we know, women are great multitaskers as well, which and, and collaboratives. I want to see those numbers rise and rise. An interesting thing, and I had never really reflected on it, and Tima Steg at the Women in Media was saying that, yeah, uh, maybe female cinematographers or the different female creatives in cinema weren't getting as many chances or they get a chance. And whereas maybe a man would be able to, what they say, fail up, like they, mm-hmm. their latest film wouldn't be successful, but they would be given another chance. And women were just like, that's it. You know, <laughs> so now you're left out in the cold. But then she said that she posits that that's a reason that then they found homes in television and that why we have this renaissance now, which is so wonderful. And I hope you I know you've done television projects and we hope that you'll be doing more and more of that. I hadn't reflected on that. That was maybe why we we're getting all these nuanced stories in television. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I've met Tema a few times, too, but, but that is a very interesting insight for sure. And what's it like working then on television? I mean, it's a whole different kind of storytelling. Will you be moving more into that? Because it seems like so much is moving that way that, as Matthew Libatique said to me, you know, maybe he doesn't have a choice. Right. I don't know. I worked on an Apple TV series called Home Before Dark. I shot the pilot, which John directed, and then he left and I shot a couple more episodes before In the Heights. And Speaking of amazing women, uh, the showrunners, Dana Fox and Dara Resnick and producer Joy Gorman were just amazing to work for and have become good friends and good champions of my work. And it was such a wonderful show to work on. And 
so I don't know what, what will come next. I don't know. There is so much TV and there's so much good TV now. And the line between TV and movies is getting narrower, thinner and thinner and thinner. So I don't know what will happen, but I do like, I like movies because I like the challenge of telling a full story in two hours or 75 minutes or two and a half hours, whatever it may be. I like that you have a full story that you tell in a period of time. So it's a different mental challenge. Yes, I don't know how they do it because particularly when the more successful a show is and then season after season, you have to continually end it. But then it's like, and then just add like one more thing. They, yeah. It's unresolved. <laughs> and so I don't know, wrapping it and re beginning again is uh, such a challenge that I can't even imagine to keep all those stories in my head. But yes, I love to, to see more of your work on television and on the large screen because you've given us, as to use your own words, so much beauty and reminded us of that there is music in the streets and there is music in our lives. So I think in closing, as you think about, I actually want to return to some of those questions that you had mentioned earlier, you know, like, tell us what does home mean to you? You know, where do you want to be? What is important to you? So I have a um, six-year-old daughter. She just turned six. And the kinds of stories that I want to tell have changed. Five years ago, I would have taken any movie and been excited to film it or any TV show and been excited to film it. But I now want to make movies that inspire her to be greater than she is, to stimulate her, to give her role models, to just inspire joy and passion in her life and as artists we as filmmakers we have this amazing tool that we get to use and so so the stories I pick are now very specific in the heights is pg-13 and I was like oh should we show it to her and we did I mean she started making paper dresses because she watched Vanessa find different things and create and create designs, wardrobe, clothing designs. And so my daughter, I came home from a trip and I walked into the house and she had created a paper jacket that fit me perfectly somehow and a dress all out of paper and tape. And, and she was inspired by Vanessa. And you don't know what the little things are, but whatever movie or show I do, I want it needs to have inspiration and it. it needs to be like the book, Miss Rumpheus, that I read as a child and continue to read, that gives something at the end, that asks a question at the end so that people can grow from the experience of watching the film. Yes, it's so important. We don't know what those little things uh, will be. It can be a sentence. It can be just a small thing. And you can give people lessons for life that they will take with them. So as you think about the teachers and the lessons that you learned along the way, what are some important ones that help form you as an artist? The thing I learned the most in college, I had one more class I needed to take at my last semester, and I ended up in a graduate producing class. Not that I ever wanted to be a producer, but it became the most important class that I took. And the professor was this producer named Jerry Eisenberg. And he told us the story about what Hollywood is, 
And he's what the movie industry is. And he said, you'll finish school and you'll go out into the world and think overnight you're going to be successful. He's like, but Hollywood is like this massively huge brick wall. Your job is to take stones and throw it at the brick wall until you see a teeny little hole and to the other side. And when you see that little hole, that's the moment you're going to want to give up. But that is the moment you cannot give up. That is the moment you need to throw those rocks even harder and harder and harder because you are almost to the other side. So every time in my career, I have thought, okay, it's time to quit. I remember that story and I never gave up. I'm still not giving up. You know, I don't know what the next thing will be, but I'm going to continue. I'm not going to give up. I love my job. Oh, yes. It's it's beautiful that you can be in that profession that allows you to uh, bring beauty into people's lives. Another thing that we think of now uh, is the future. And I know that in your home in California, you have the wildfires. We have, we're really at this crucial time. And as you think about your daughter or the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Always be kind and be kind to the world, be kind to the person you don't know. You don't know what just happened to them. Be kind to the people who are mean to you. We have this moment right now and there's nothing else. And so kindness is all that matters. Yes, it's so simple and so important. So thank you, Alice Brooks, for inviting us into your imaginative world and your compassionate camera work, which tells us important stories about aspiration, love, immigration, hope, displacement and resilience, and showing us the music in our lives, filling the world with beauty and your important contributions to cinematic storytelling. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Jordan Holman. The digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcast, or submit your own creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.